0: Ian is still here, it can't be going that badly. <laughs> <laughs> Heading 2.1 on page 2 bodies. So, underneath that text box with the questions in. What I want to do is just lay out a bit of a framework over the next uh, little bit of time, and we'll, we'll see how far we get through it. You've already discovered I'm a rather diffusive. Thinker and speaker, and who knows what's going to happen in the next 40 minutes. But here we go. You've got some bullet points. Bodies. Tom, feel free to just sort of stare hard at me if you need to. <clears throat> Let, let's go to Genesis 2, just so you think that I believe the Bible. Um, because, I, because I do. But Genesis 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plants of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man, and the word, the verb formed then, yatsar in Hebrew, is the word of a potter moulding clay. Okay, the, the Lord God formed... Uh, Like a craftsman, the man from the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Now this seems to me, uh, forgive me, it's the problem of stopping being a pastor and reading big books all day, As you start to say things like, this seems to me anthropologically fundamental. But it's, I think this is fundamental for an anthropology, for an understanding of what it means to be human. And here's the point I'm going to sort of slowly try and expand, so don't, you know, panic with this first sentence. A human person is a body. Okay? I don't merely have a body. It is not, I am a soul, <coughs> and I have a body. I don't have a body, I am a body. And at least from, I mean, they—you know, with, with roots in Plato, but then particularly with roots in René Descartes um, in the early modern period, um, modern thinkers have lost a grip on this. Uh, Descartes says there are basically two, two realities. There's the mind, the non-extended thinking thing, and that is what I am. I think, therefore I am. I am just a a disembodied thinking thing. And the mind lives in in a body, which is an extended kind of biological machine, basically. It's a a mechanistic view of the human body. And it's not entirely obvious in Descartes' thought uh, what the connection between mind and body is. I mean, he locates it in the pineal gland for... (laughs) extraordinary reasons that I don't understand but the, the actual connection between me and my body is severed at that point and the real me is the I, the thinking I uh, if you go to the romantics then they're actually, they are much more embodied but it, it, it becomes adjusted through Rousseau and the sort of German romantics um, in the uh, 19th century, the English romantic poets and it's the feeling I I feel therefore I am um, but Gilbert Ryle describes Descartes' anthropology, his understanding of humanity as, I'm a ghost in a machine. And I think that is, that is what I'm kicking against here. I don't have a body in that kind of way. I'm not a ghost in a machine. I'm not a, a soul that sort of mysteriously somehow inhabits and animates this kind of basically robot. You know, as a kid, I at junior school I think it was at junior school I, I, I spent a few days just thinking oh, what if I imagined that my teacher and all of my classmates were robots but just really convincing ones and so I did and I think it went on for two or three days until suddenly I was like what if they are? <laughs> and I was so frightened that I kind of pulled back from the experiment. <laughs> and I decided to take it on face value. that Because if they were, maybe I was. I mean, that was the really frightening thing. Let's just assume we're human. Um, I don't really have a body. I am a body. So if I crash into your car, then I imagine you'll be pretty upset with me. If I run over your foot... That's a different thing, isn't it? You know, if I crash into your car, I've, I've damaged one of your possessions. If, if I run over your foot, I've damaged you. And it's no good me going, oh, don't worry, it's just your foot, it's not you. And we need to be non-reductionistic. It's not that we are just bodies, as some kinds of, you know, evolutionary anthropology would say. We're just bodies that somehow have consciousness and thought we're more than bodies we are a a body-soul unity Um, but I think the way to think about it is um, you can talk about it in one of two ways it's not that I am body plus soul equals me but it's more I am an embodied soul or actually probably better more in line with Christian tradition to say I am an ensouled body uh, because the soul, in traditional Christian theology, at least in the you know the way, there there, are, I'm I'm eliding some differences here. But the soul is the animating principle of a living thing. So actually, did you know that that uh, plants have souls and animals have souls? Um, Spencer, I was like, I said to some friends, I'm just going to watch Spencer's eyebrows. <laughs> Um, because the, the Latin word for soul is anyone know? Oh, it's a mens for mind, but actually for soul it's anima. Yeah. So the soul is the the thing that animates a body. Um, I think I saw one theologian say actually you know if we're thinking biblically we, rather than talking about soul and body we talk about life and body and I think you know maybe. The point is, humans, that the, the, the way a human soul is different from an animal soul is that ours is a rational soul. Um, you know, so the Council of Chalcedon tells us that Christ assumed a human, soul, a human body with a rational soul. Uh, we are thinking. We are, we are thinking animals. Um, so, but the soul is the animating principle because, James 2... Just as the the body apart from the soul is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. You take the soul out of the body, and the body dies and disintegrates. So the the soul is what gives form to the body, and makes your body distinctively you. Otherwise you'd just be a a collection of atoms, slowly disintegrating, as one day you will be, briefly. Briefly. And the soul is the form of the body. Without the soul, the body disintegrates. And so there's a two-stage thing. God, God forms the body and then breathes life into it. It breathes in the soul. So Adam becomes a living, thinking, in the image of God, thing, person. So it's established in creation that body and soul belong together. <coughs> they are separated at death, but we believe in the resurrection of the body. And so the complete hum- the, 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 the souls of, of, the, of the saints in the intermediate state are incomplete. They are incomplete humans um, and will only be complete again when they are raised bodily, when Christ returns. This is important. Um, At that point, it makes the body really important, doesn't it? It means there are more important aspects of you than simply your biology because you are an ensouled body. So your desires, your thoughts, um, your choices, your rational choices um, are more important. Goods of The soul, love of God, love of neighbour are more important than goods of the body, feeding my face and getting enough sleep. Um, Nevertheless, you can't separate out soul and body in a way that says all that matters about me is my soul. That's a heresy. Um, And so it means I am not merely a soul or an I, temporarily linked with a body. I would quite like to be just a mind that my body takes from my bed to my desk, you know, and the body's useful for holding the book open before my eyes. That's not what I am. I'm not merely a soul or an eye temporarily linked with a body. I'm not merely how I feel subjectively and internally. That's not the real me. The real me is my body as well as my desires. And so questions about are your desires in line with your body? Let me be really provocative for a minute. What is your sexual orientation? And how do you know? You know because of the body you have. That's not to say you can't have sexual desires that are for someone of the same sex. Of course, we know that's true. But the sexual orientation of any human being is given in the form of their body. Our bodies are what orients us to the opposite sex, sexually, actually. Um, So, nor am I an I or a self arbitrarily chapter in the body. Well, I just made that point. At the same time, I'm not merely a biological organism or a machine. And I just want to just put in a little footnote or marker here and say, I taught on transhumanism the other week. (coughs) um, And there's going to be a long blog post at some point on the Parsons Academy website when I finally turn my rambling diffuse speaker type thoughts into hopefully coherent prose on transhumanism and artificial intelligence and all that kind of thing because this is now the big forget transgender stuff okay I, th- I, I think we've crested that wave and this is the next one And what I don't want is for for us to be sitting around in five years' time scratching our heads and going, I've never thought about that. And now, um, so so it'd be great to begin thinking about it. And the point that I'm trying to crystallise in my own mind and in the minds of others is we we live in a world that treats humans basically as biological machines that need fixing and updating rather than being soul-body unities that need loving and redeeming. Um, but I want to tie our our personhood as as intimately as I can to our bodies why are you a person? because you are a body with a rational soul you are a, a living creature with the breath of life breathed into you by God and we know the human body is fully personal because where do you, how, do you, how do you and I encounter each other personally? I mean, I, I, you know, so let's, I'll pick on Spencer because I know him. What, what would happen if I went up and just stared at Spencer's elbow? It would be a little bit odd, wouldn't it? It would certainly be a weird conversation from Spencer's point of view if I tried to engage him in conversation. What happens though, so I'm just looking at a bit off his body at that point, what happens though if I go up to Spencer and look him in the face and look him in the eyes? I am not just looking at a a biological machine. I'm not just looking at a body, but by looking at the the centre and the locus of Spencer's body, I'm seeking him. I'm seeking an encounter with a person. So Roger Scruton says in his wonderful book, The Face of God, as we gaze into someone's eyes, we are seeking a person. We're seeking the person who, as it were, is... Behind their eyes, but I want to say they're not. Spencer's not behind his eyes. He 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 encounters me in his eyes and through his eyes. Um, obvious nuances to, to that in terms of telephone conversations and people who are blind and things like that. But nevertheless, this is how we're designed: that our bodies are fully personal. So actually, if I went up and punched Spencer on the nose, I'm not just. It's not like punching a dog on the nose. By, by attacking his body I'm attacking him a person made in God's image and this is what we treat our children isn't it teach our children we, we teach them that people are not allowed to touch you there or people are not allowed to you know my, my son at junior school he, he came up to me the other day and he goes I'm about to get a red card they get red cards at school and normally it's a long slow process to get a red card at school I'm about to get a red card BAM! because a punch or a kick is a red card because you're hitting a person and he's allowed to hit me because he's small enough that he doesn't do too much damage but how we treat our bodies how we treat other people's bodies is how we treat them How we regard our bodies is how we regard ourselves as persons. This immediately raises the stakes on questions of sexuality, but it gives incredible dignity to our bodies. Whether whether your body is male or female, young or old, attractive or unattractive in your eyes or the eyes of others, Healthy, strong, fading, ill, weak, hurting, feeling great. It's not just a machine that carries you around. It is the image of God with your mind. It's incredibly precious. And therefore, what we do sexually is not just taking a one or two bits of our bodies which we'll come back to in a minute and doing something relatively inconsequential for a bit of fun or pleasure or release but it's something that entails our entire person and it shapes our souls and it it displays contempt selfishness or love and service of real people, and of ourselves. So I would argue, at one level, the sexual revolution is all about self-love, and at another level, I would argue, it's about a complete lack of self-love. It's about, it's about a careless contempt for ourselves as God has made us. And one of the, one of the solutions, I think, is actually just to teach our children, and to recapture our own imaginations, if it needs capturing, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and we are beautiful and valuable and precious, and will be raised. Bodies in creation. Why? Why do you have a body? I've, I've put your body and yourself, who you are, together. And said there's there's an intimate, unbreakable in this life link that will be severed temporarily in the intermediate state and then brought back together again. So when I talk about your body, I'm talking about you as a person, not just about a biological machine. Your body, what is your body? I think the way to think about our bodies is to think (coughs) in the category of gift. In two ways. First, your body is a good gift from God. We see it in... um, In the verbs used of the formation of Adam and the formation of Eve, um, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So the potter. This is this is not mass produced production line junk. (laughs) This is handcrafted artisan pottery. Incredible skill. Worthy of display in the great museums of the world. I praise you, says the psalmist, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You wove me together. Uh, You embroidered me in my mother's womb. The verb used of Eve is not the verb yatsar, it's the verb banar, which is to build. Um, It is the the verb used of the master builder. Um, So where does it occur? It occurs in uh, 1 Kings 5 to 7. Uh, of the temple, of Solomon's temple. The temple is built, and Solomon's temple has architectural features like ribs. You know, Eve's made from Adam's rib, the temple has ribs. Uh, it has a face. Buildings have faces, the facade of a building. And Roger Scruton's brilliant on this. And so, so Bath is London, sadly now, the London skyline. London is, a, is, an, is architecturally a city without faces yeah, because they're just monstrous. and and overwhelming and ugly and and, and, and mechanical and, yeah. Bath is a city of facades. It's built on a human scale with beauty and proportion and, and decorative arts, okay? Now, why talk about the woman being built? Partly for that reason, that we're talking about proportion and elegance and beauty, but also what temple does God really want to build? he wants to build a temple which is a bride he wants to build the bride of Christ so all of these I think we got this in C form Paul's not just inventing stuff when he goes oh look Ephesians 5 this is all about Christ and the church no this is, all, this is always God's plan he, he's, he's creating this architectural wonder called a woman who is a, a type of the architectural wonder which is the bride of Christ Bodies don't get much better than this. It's a good gift. A good gift from God. I praise you that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And therein lies a good part of the battle in a hypersexualized culture. Where, where, where forms of beauty that are unattainable are paraded before us. And just to, to be able to receive your body as a gift from God and say thank you. So your whole body, your, your your body, your whole self, as male or female, is a good gift from God, the Master Craftsman, for his good purposes. So your body, you are a gift received from God, to be received with thankfulness. A gift in that sense, but also a gift to be given. Why did God give you hands? serve other people you know why, why did God give parents hands to, to hold and caress and comfort their children why do we shake hands <laughs> when we meet I don't maybe you don't anymore <coughs> but I try to still and I think it's important to why, you know, why, why, why are they so dexterous and wonderful at doing things not primarily to please myself but so I have all kinds of incredible God given ways of serving and loving other people And, and sexually, so I think the distinction between men and women, we define sexually in important ways. Sexually, we are given our bodies so that we can give ourselves as a gift to another. And the idea is that you give this gift in the way that God gives gifts, which is fully, unreservedly, without holding back. The man and his wife were naked... And we're not ashamed. There's a complete comfort in one another's presence. And what the fall introduces is they conceal themselves from one another and they withdraw and they hide. And interesting, isn't it, that even in the the way they conceal themselves, they say fig leaves together. It's a sexually oriented concealing. It's a a concealing that also reveals. it, It reveals I am now withholding my sexuality from you. Um. So we're to be, a, 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 the, 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 the reason marriage is the heart of God's plan for male-female sexual relationships is precisely this reason. The reason promiscuity is wrong is because, I mean, promiscuity is just saying, well, you can have, you can have a bit of me for tonight. Uh, the reason living with someone rather than getting married to them is wrong is it's saying, well, you know, you've kind, you've kind of got me on loan and we'll see how it works out. Play your cards right and you might either get rid of me sooner or um, keep me for longer. Sorry, that was cynical. Um, The reason it's to be a man and a woman for life is to say, you know what? Nobody has a clue what they're promising on the day of their wedding. (laughs) You just don't have a clue. And do you know when you know what you promised? The day one of you dies. And so marriage is an extraordinary act of faith and an extraordinary act of hope and an extraordinary act of love because it's saying, you know, unreservedly, you get me. I will not turn back on this. I am yours. All that I have, I give you. Reciprocally, So, man and woman give themselves to one another. It is a giving and a receiving to your spouse, okay? Because you can't give yourself wholly in this way without remainder to more than one person. God can do that. God can give Himself wholly, without reserve, without remainder. To well, with with infinite remainder, in fact, um, to as many people as He cares to redeem. Because his resources are only... You're a finite person. You can give your whole self to one other person who is like you. To your spouse. And for the sake of children. So... Children are just baked... Oh. Well, I'll just run with it and you can see what an awful metaphor... Baked into the bargain. I mean, everything, everything is wrong with that sentence, but... It's not a bargain. Um, this This is the meaning of your body. What's the meaning of your sexual organs? Why do you have them? Your sexual organs are the only organs that don't work in your body alone. Every other organ you have, your heart, your mind, your heart, your brain, your lungs, they work within your own body, don't they? Male sexual organs don't work as an organ except in tandem with female sexual organs. Because how do they produce their organic function? Well, their organic function is to produce children. Uh, And so they they work together. Now, they they have different functions as well, don't they? And we we could go there and it would be interesting, but we we won't because it's gross. But... (laughs) (coughs) Why did God give you taste buds. So, okay, the the standard answer to why God gave you sexual organs would be because because it's fun, isn't it? It's pleasurable. He gave me them because he loves, loves me and he wants me to have pleasure and give pleasure. Why did God give you taste buds? Why did God give you a tongue and a throat and a stomach? Well, for nutrition, basically. And because he loves you, he gave you taste buds as well. So that rather than just Sustaining your body with tasteless gruel, uh, you get to go, wow, this is steak. Bloomin' egg, chocolate cake is great. I love Brussels sprouts. I do love Brussels sprouts. Um, And you have these incredible tastes and textures. But the pleasure of eating, imagine the person who eats only for pleasure. We call them a glutton. And they don't look very healthy. Imagine the person, so, so God has just gone, you know what, sometimes even when you're hungry you're not going to want to eat. And so I'm going to make the food taste good so that you do. And so that your children, you can tempt them with something. <coughs> and so se- sex is pleasurable because he loves us and there's an excess of of love and kindness to us. And it's not just a pure, but it's not, it's not designed to be a perfunctory kind of, oh you know, we're married, so we need to have children, so we do this thing, and there we go. But it's about loving union. It's not about the gratification of the pleasure itself. It's not, it's not focused on the pleasure itself. The pleasure is the sort of, the, 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 the means to the end of procreative union, primarily, and, and the bonding together of husband and wife. So actually, again, think pornography. What is a, what is a young man with his smartphone doing? He's binding himself to his flipping smartphone, it's extraordinary thought. And again, if I was a smartphone manufacturer, I would be quite keen on that. Or if I was an advertiser, I would be quite keen on that. But it's designed actually to bind you to one other person for the rest of your life, for the sake of children. And I just want to say, I don't have time to, to do this, but stable, loving families... Rooted in stable loving marriages are the foundation for stable loving societies. They just are. That does not mean everyone needs to get married. Um, it does mean that if marriage dissolves, everyone suffers. Everyone. Because children take a long time, I don't know if you notice this, children take a long time to grow up, don't they? And they take huge resources and a lot of resilience on the part of parents. And I, again, single parents have nothing but my admiration. I think they are just heroic and I want to do everything I can to support them and cheer for them because it's hard enough with two parents. But in God's wisdom, we're designed to do it as a couple and actually rooted in a broader. So I'm not even just talking about a nuclear family. There was a reason why when Tom said, tell me something about yourself. I said, well, I've got a mother and a sister and a nephew, you know. We lived for five years in a foreign country and there were times when just the stress of... (laughs) Trying to do the parent, family things, even with a loving church community, away from your natural family, it's just harder than if they'd been just around the corner. So Oliver O'Donovan, marriage is a pattern of human fulfillment, by which he doesn't mean uh, sort of subjective fulfillment, oh I feel really fulfilled, because those of us who are married know that's not always how it feels. But fulfillment in the sense of living according to how we've been made, Marriage is a pattern of human fulfilment which serves the wider end of enabling procreation to occur in a context of affection and loyalty. That is the context we want for children, isn't it? And those of us, I mean, praise God, that was the context of my childhood. But those of us who who did not experience that in, in our childhoods know that that is a wound. That is a deep wound. That harm has been done to you and your parents may not have intended it and and, and they may well have loved you dearly but if you are deprived of early years particularly in the context of affection and loyalty that has been harmful. And if you live in a society where that becomes frankly fairly normal it makes any kind of affectionate trusting, loyal, loving relationship, very difficult. We can recover from it when basically the social foundation is strong. The more it disintegrates and we are left to our own devices to recover, the harder and harder it gets. So I want to say, everything I've just been saying about families is also true of celibate people, for two reasons. Firstly, you come from a family family. You belong to a family. It's not true to say that our churches have some people who are in families and some people who are single. In practice, in day-to-day life, that may be how life works out and the shape it takes. But it's a lie. Everyone belongs to a family. Um, And so, so the need for a recovery of some sense of family being much more than... Mum, dad, 2.4 children, or mum and three children, or whatever it is, is vital. So you come from a family, you belong to a family, and your family are important. And again, we know the pain of broken family relationships. I don't know anyone who doesn't have a slightly odd extended family. <laughs> we, all, we all do, and we all have pains and frustrations, and the kind of ones like, oh, that, that's the uncle I haven't seen for 25 years. Or, I'm really dreading next Christmas because... Um, and yet, we, we know... And, and the reason it's painful is because it's supposed to be so good. But it's also true for single people in our churches that families are terribly important. To, be, to belong in families, to be around families, to, to be experiencing that intergenerational affection and loyalty even if it's not my biological family, or my family by marriage, is a beautiful thing. I remember a business trip to the States, um, where I I was put up by these incredibly generous people who were employing me to do some writing, and they put me in this absurd, newly opened five-star hotel, in a hotel room like I have never seen before or since, that I could never afford. And I was given these incredible meals, um, and I was given a bit of discretionary money to go to art galleries in the, you know, and all And it was brilliant. Um, and then a single guy who was there invited me to his home and said, come and have, you know, come and just spend an afternoon with me. And it was lovely. And then he went, we need to eat in a minute. Um, but there's no, there's no point trying to eat here because go and look in my fridge. And this is... This was a, He was an eccentric guy, but I looked in the fridge and there was just, like, the fridge was full of bottles of San Pellegrino water. And that was it. So we went out to a restaurant. And it was really nice and it was fun and I really appreciated his hospitality. Um, And then I got taken by a family into their home and fed at their table. That was a different experience. And and I just... the, The sexual revolution makes it very hard to imagine... A life like that. Which is just normal life. And actually, you know, if you'd asked me beforehand and said, what would you rather do? Would you like to go and have lasagna a very you know it's very ordinary lasagna with this family, or would you like to go to this high end Chinese restaurant and be given a very expensive bottle of wine and eat with some really fun stimulating people? I know which I would have chosen. And that all all that stuff was fun, but what I really realised I wanted was just to be with a family for a bit. The effects of sin, I mean, I need to stop in a moment. Just to say, lust and shame shatter that communion of persons, which is the deepest meaning of our male and female bodies. They just shatter it. We go into hiding. And I'm not going to develop this point, because I think all the stuff I did at the beginning begins to gesture in that direction. It's a miserable life. It's a miserable life. So think about sexual shame as hiding our vulnerabilities from one another, where we're supposed to be able to be in a, in a marriage relationship, naked and unashamed, and in a, fa- a sort of wider family relationship, not naked and unashamed, but just free to be myself. You know, The great thing about a proper family is that you can be a complete idiot and your family will still love you, as, as I have discovered it many times in, in many ways. But that's not the sexual contract we've set up, is it? Well, we don't expect someone to be perfect, but you've got to live up to this kind of ideal and meet my needs and gratify me. And therefore, instead of giving ourselves fully and reciprocally to another person as a person, here, I want all of you have all of me. Instead of doing that, we use other people's bodies, no longer a person, just a body, for our own gratification. And I just, Dante very helpfully said to me, you know, one of of the other things about children becoming the objects of their parents' will is the way that parents then start to live through their children. And you wrap them in cotton wool because you're terrified of anything going wrong and it's your precious darling. But also they have to conform to a certain thing and you push them on in a certain direction in life. And it's very uncomfortable when they then go a different way and actually just act like a normal human being should and differentiate themselves from their parents'. Well, let's think about pornography. Um, Roger Scruton, brilliantly, r- talking about film generally. Look at the way women are portrayed in film. And this is going right back to the earliest days of cinema. This is not a recent thing. The camera angles used of men versus when a woman comes onto a scene, what do you see first? And, and how does the camera pan across her? So feminist film criticism in the 70s and 80s, which Scruton picks up on, talks about women in movies as an assemblage of body parts. And we know which body parts. And so pornography reduces men and especially women to just body parts. Not people for communion, but body parts for gratification. And reduces the user to one or two body parts. And we won't go further than that. But you stop being a person and the only thing that matters are one or two bits of your anatomy. What about singleness, though? Okay, I just let me race through this. Singleness, I think, is an odd term, and I don't really like it. <laughs> just let me put it out there. This is me being curmudgeonly, but one of the things I'm kind of paid to do is think about words. It's one of the just things I do. Single. Suggested isolation, doesn't it? Not not, not in relationship. What is your relationship status? Single. Um, the Christian tradition tends to speak of virginity, chastity, continence. Um, which is a certain way of living that doesn't actually say a lot about your relationships beyond the fact that you're not engaging in sexual activity in relationships. And you know, Chastity and continence are things you're supposed to practice in marriage as well, even as part of the sexual relationship. (laughs) Um, And so singleness. Marriage, which is what I've been talking about (laughs) most, roots are sexuality in creation and life in this world. This is the natural in the sense of ordinary, um, statistically prevalent... And necessary for the continuation of the species and the stability of society and the raising of children. Roots are sexuality and creation. Virginity or chastity points towards its transformation in the resurrection. And this is where a Christian sexual ethic is so much better. That it is not bound just to life in this world. But it, but it, it, it tells us that actually this this creation as we experience it. Has always been ordered towards a far greater fulfillment and transformation and consummation. God builds Eve, God makes Adam from the dust, and if there's a natural man, so there will also be a spiritual man, there will be a man of heaven. God builds Eve as a single woman, you know what I mean by that, as one woman. Because he's going to build a bride, which is a people, which is a city, which is a temple. And so this is something that we can't begin to imagine. It's so much better than marriage. It's so much better than a sexually self-controlled and chaste culture in this life. It's so much better than Britain in the 1930s or the Sexual purity is a wonderful thing because it bears witness to our glorious hope that Christ will come and there will be a marriage feast and there will be a consummation and an intimacy and a joy and a pleasure and a fruitfulness that earthly marriage and earthly sexual relationships are are not even the faintest echo of. They are like the, the shadow that passes before the sun as the cloud just passes by compared to the sun shining in all its glory and so Jesus talks about continence for the sake of the kingdom of heaven and celibacy is a, is, a, is a great sign and signpost that something better is coming I think in a real sense a sexually chaste church and, and sexually chaste single people are incredible signposts of the gospel when rightly interpreted by the, the scriptures what will the resurrected life be like, says Jesus in uh, Mark 12 with the Sadducees. There'll be no marrying or giving in marriage. Marriage and procreation belong exclusively to this world. And yet we will be raised bodily as male or female. Male and female, male or female. We won't be androgynous. We won't be disembodied. We will be male and female and so actually our, our maleness and femaleness means far more than simply de- designed for union and procreation. And together, as the bride of Christ, we will give ourselves, body and soul, fully to God in union and communion when we see him face to face. So what is your body to gift from God? To be given to others in all kinds of Acts of service to be given sexually in the union of marriage. But in the end, Romans, the structure of human life is Romans 11.36. Memorise this and, and apply it to just like every time you think about anything. From him and through him and to him are all things your body and your sexual organs included. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so if your body is to be given as unreserved gift, to whom is it to be given? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. So together, as resurrected bodies, as resurrected persons, we will give ourselves fully, unreservedly, everlastingly, joyfully to the God who has given his body in Christ fully and unreservedly for us. And, you know, let me just be like... I'm a a really conservative and pretty high church reformed Christian and go for us and to us in the Lord's Supper. So, you know, I just... If I've not thrown enough hand grenades into the room, let me just go... You know, one of the ways to begin to think about the gift of the body is to just come to the Lord's table regularly in thankfulness. (laughs) Having, Having thrown the bomb, I'll carry on. And in this way, and in this way alone... In the life of the world to come, we will discover in the fullest possible way the true meaning of our bodies as mutual, personal gift. And we could imply that to the communion we'll have with all the saints in glory too, I think. where they will, you know, we will be, Whether we be naked or roped in glory, we will be unashamed and fully open and transparent to one another and at rest. Not hiding, not ashamed. Not hiding from God, not hiding from one another, but with a a love and a delight and a joy in one another and in serving one another and in in enjoying the delightfulness of one another oriented towards God. And that, my friends, is why, first of all, we shouldn't be ashamed. We don't need to pretend to believe something other than we believe, because what we believe... I mean, it's it's better than all the filth and the carnage of the sexual revolution, but it's better than all the nonsense of the 1930s and 40s as well. It's better than purely mundane, this worldly life. That's why we shouldn't be ashamed. It's also, I think, why we do need Christian voices in the public square who will be unashamedly Christian voices. Because it's wonderful that Kathleen Stock... Or Louise Perry talk about these things, but honestly what they have to offer it's better than the alternatives right now, but it is nowhere near as good as what the gospel brings us. Nowhere near as good. Because the gospel brings us God. Questions? I don't know what time, we we probably should have finished by now, should we talk? Five minutes of questions? questions? Yeah.
1: Thanks brother, so much. Um, On transhumanism. apart from your article, where would we
0: yeah, there's a book um, there's a book by um, oh John Lennox called twenty eighty four. That would be my first call. Um, my coll- my former colleague and my friend Haddon Turner has a substack called Over the Field and he is in a series now on transhumanism and he's just a really stimulating young thinker.
1: Um
0: that name again? Haddon Turner h a w d e n Turner um, I think it 's really worth reading yuval Noah Harari Homo Deus the, ch- the first chapter, just to kind of go, Oh my life is this the, is this where we are and what people want um, it 's a very sobering read, which apparently is going through parts of some of our major universities like a dose of salts okay. yeah so those, are, those would be three
1: yeah. uh, marriage roots are sexuality and creation you've laboured very heavily on procreation and, and the gift and the beauty the majesty of uh, having children what do you say to committed married Christian couples who just can't?
0: Um, there's a reason why you feel grief about this would be the first thing I would say so I think, you know, one, registering, so the first thing I would say is, actually, that would, the first, well, I've, the order doesn't matter, does it? One of the things I would say is you're really married and your marriage is good. And, and it's not a sort of second rate marriage, it's a real marriage, it's the proper thing. We have to trust in God's providence, those kinds of things. Um, And the Lord knows what he's doing in your marriage. But I think one of the things that I've realised is we need to be able to talk about what is good and real in order to register, why does this hurt so much? Um, And so so to be able to say, it's not just because of your human, again, children are not a matter of artifice and human will and choosing then there's a, they are naturally good. And they, they are just naturally, instinctively good within the context of a marriage. So it's not just that I'm not getting what I want, which I think is sometimes how it feels, mm. but you, you really are in the mysterious providences of God mm. aching for the loss of an objective good. Mm. And I cannot explain to you why that is, um, although you know from the bible we know that it happens um, that would be the that would be the first thing i would say and then i think just pastorally over time you begin to sort of say you know marriage is designed the thing we need to correct is the idea that marriage is designed to be turned inwards with the couple facing one another full stop that the couple face one another in order to turn outwards so you don't actually raise children <laughs> just for the sake of raising children you raise children for the sake of the kingdom of god Uh, Marriage is ordered towards society as a whole, um, and and ultimately towards the kingdom of God. So we're seeking to raise believers, but we're seeking to have, I'm not saying open homes, but not the drawbridge up, the moat filled with alligators' homes. Um, And so that's true of every family, but also for the, the couple who aren't able to have children. Just to be saying, how, how is your marriage able to be open to others? Well, one of the most remarkable and impressive and godly Christian couples I know. Realised early in their marriage they wouldn't be able to have children. And they are just exceptional, exceptional at loving other people. They're amazing. I, 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 you know, They won't listen to this, so I can say it. Dan and Susie Leaf are just extraordinary. I don't know people who are better at loving other people of all different kinds and give themselves so generously to others together. Um, I know an older couple who um, decided not to have children early on in their lives. They were unbelievers and they just said it was a selfish decision. They were converted later in life. And I remember having a conversation with them with them just saying, we bitterly regret it. We were so selfish. It was such a mistake. And I just went, just just remember the stories you've been telling me about the th- last three weekends and the young people you've had in your home. You, you have been doing some really good parenting. Really good parenting. And I watched them do some really, you know, this was in America. I watched them do some really good grandparenting with my children when my children didn't have grandparents to have. So just like, that, that's, let's let the reality of marriage capture our imaginations and go in the providential situations the Lord has put us in how do we do that and again if you are, if you are single and you're living on your own then I'm going how, how can your life be how do you get the, the relational support and sustenance you need but also how can you give to others if you live with housemates is, it, is, this, just a, is this just a sort of brick and mortar sharing arrangement or can you function uh, in, in familial ways of love and care and hospitality together? I had a brilliant housemate at university who was just so good at going, Sunday lunch, we'll invite people around and we'll all cook together. Mm. Which is not what I would choose to do at all. I would just choose to go to my room and read a book. But it was really good for me. Yeah. Uh, another question? One more? Yeah. Um,
1: when you were talking about having a body, being a body, um, Make me think of War of the Worlds, that the Martians are the kind of perfect outcome of the evolution aren't their massive brain, able mm. to build a machine to do whatever they wanted. And I wondered if actually that's our view of ourselves. I don't know how geeky you are, Matthew, but... Um, of course, you know, can tell. Uh, in, in Cyberpunk, you can, in the world of Cyberpunk, you can replace parts of your body with machines. And if you do that too much, people develop something called cyberpsychosis, where they don't see themselves as a human, they don't see others as a human, but just as a collection of parts, and they go mental do all sorts of terrible things. Is that the view, do you think it's, that's what we have, essentially, yeah. we see ourselves as a collection of parts of everybody else, so I can cut this off and replace them, that's fine, and I can do whatever I want to anybody else, because they're actually not a person. I'm not affecting their person, that's their kind of mind thing which is abstracted from there.
0: So artificial hand, good or bad. I want to say if 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 this is a means of providing something for a person who doesn't have it Brilliant, amazing, what a a technological gift to find someone who is born without a hand and to be able to say, we will give you a, a functioning hand. I'm going to pick on Spencer again. If I go, Spencer, your hands are nice, but I could give you something that is faster, stronger, more dexterous. Why don't we chop it off and give you that? It's a totally different thing, isn't it? Artificial eyes. You know, someone born blind... What, a, what an extraordinary thing to be able to do that. Someone who's just like me, a bit short-sighted, or, and what it, what it eventually becomes is, not only is this artificial hand um, better than your hand now, but you're going to get older and your hand will get weaker and stop working, and this hand could, look, we could keep replacing bits, and it could keep going for a couple of hundred years, or longer. Um, and that is where the question of, are we basically slightly dysfunctional biological machines that need repairing and updating and improving? Or are we frail creatures of God who need loving and redeeming? Um, and I just let me apply it to pastoral ministry and go, we don't, we don't do it in crude transhumanist kind of techno whatever. Terms, but how often in ministry do we basically treat people and congregations and, and situations as problems that need our technical know-how to fix? Rather than being willing to say, I just need to love this person. I need to walk with this person. I need to spend time with them. Whether or not this issue or this problem or this relational difficulty resolves, what they need is my presence and my love and my prayers and the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. And in the mysterious providence of God, why aren't our problems solved now, yesterday, a month ago? Why does he let me keep going with all of the sin in my life? because he's doing something better and we just have to trust him. And and, and that sort of, I just, you know, I wish as a pastor I had spent less time strategising about how to solve problems and more time praying and just going, Lord, will you work in your way for the outcome that you want for your glory? Rather than, and that takes it again, that takes it away from Matthew Mason's will. This is no longer an object for me to control something for me to fix and fiddle with and repair. But this is God's people. These are God's creatures whom he alone can renew and sanctify, cleanse and raise from the dead. Yeah, so just to put this all in a much broader thing, I just find that as an an analytical tool Machine or person? Uh, my technical know-how or God's sovereign power by his spirit through his word in answer to our prayers? What kind of pastor do you want to be? What kind of church do you want to have? What kind of family? What kind of human being? Do we understand reality and do we want it? Answer, not really. But it's all we've got. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we are so grateful that you are God and yet we are so prone to want to be God or to be like you and to define reality in ways that suit us and to manipulate reality in ways that seem to suit us and we just acknowledge before you again that that is stupid, it's wicked but it's also stupid and we pray for your forgiveness for our darkened understanding for our corrupted desires for our foolish choices and our sinful actions we plead the blood of Christ we pray for ourselves and for our churches for our communities for this nation and for this entire world that You would have mercy upon us. That you would raise up. Clear thinking. Christians. Who will lead holy lives. Who will seek to honour you and love you above all other things. Who will hate sin and put it to death. Hate sexual sin and put it to death. And who will lovingly. And winsomely by by life. Life. And by words, communicate that the truth and goodness of reality from creation to new creation, as you have made it to be in your son. Oh, Lord, sanctify our imaginations. Lord, help us to see that your pattern for human sexuality is good. Not just true, but good. Uh, Good for us, good for our neighbours. Give us the love and the courage to commend it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.